So the reading this morning is, you shall not steal. Um, in the Hebrew, it just says, don't steal. Uh, stealing is all around us. Um, and yet we can feel like this commandment isn't really applicable to us, for we um, don't engage in barefaced theft, as many do in our country. And yet theft has got many subtle faces to it. Tax, the stealing of time while you are Facebooking at work, stationery, copyright, plagiarism. There's lots of ways in which we can defraud another person. Of course, besides the headlines that we see almost daily of fraud and corruption in our country, we can see theft by how our insurance premiums keep going up to compensate for insurance fraud, or how our tax books uh, keep our tax law keeps getting thicker, the book that contains our tax law, as loopholes keep needing to be closed. Uh, there are some who say that the commandment itself creates the problem, for the commandment assumes ownership. Um, and if we could only see ourselves and our possessions as belonging to the commonwealth, we would be freed from greed. And so the left will say that that the very idea of private ownership is theft. Uh, it is a stealing of resources, and certain individuals are taking what is everybody's. And this has been accepted by the government, and the cause of the problem is private ownership. And if we go back to state ownership, uh, to the people owning everything, then we'll have relief from the terrible problem of, of theft. On the other hand, the right will argue that state ownership and taxation is theft especially in a context like ours of rampant corruption, those public servants who are living off the hard-working uh, hard few who are creating wealth, they are the ones who are stealing, to say nothing of those who are living off state grants, taking the hard-earned money away from those willing and eager to work. Now, into that context, whether you're left or right or somewhere in the middle, the Christian value system on wealth and on stealing and on ownership and on property is so radically different to both left and right views as to make them seem like nonsense. Christians have got the law of God not on tablets of stone, but are written on their hearts. God's law for us is not written on stone anymore as it was in the days of Moses. It's written in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We've had a change of heart about money and about possessions and about ownership and about generosity, which makes the capitalist and the communist look crude and self-centered because, of course, that is exactly what they are. The heart change that the gospel brings followers of Jesus makes us Christ-like. It makes us more like God, and you can't get richer than God. For though he was God, yet for our sake he became poor, the one who lived in the grandeur of his father's household, rich beyond all splendor, became poor and became the outcast of the universe. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 is a key verse in understanding uh, rich riches. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. 
Jesus gave up heaven for hell. There was, there was nothing left to give. You can't give more than that. It's holding nothing back. And the very heart of the gospel of grace is the generosity of God. The opposite of theft is generosity. And uh, we know as we've been working our way through these commandments that each commandment forbids something, but it also affirms something. And today what is being affirmed is generosity. Theft comes from the heart, says Jesus in Mark chapter 7. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, and murder. But those following Jesus are different. Our hearts have changed. The followers of Jesus give willingly and generously. And you can't devise an economic system based on generosity. For what do you do with a community that just where each one is just trying to outgive the other? And so the gospel changes our attitude to money and to possessions and to property and to time and even to ourselves. Our attitude to wealth will reflect our attitude to God. It's the litmus test of your spirituality. Uh, what you do with your resources indicates the state of your heart. And the God that we worship is the God of all generosity, the creator and the owner of the universe who has given it all to us freely. There is nothing that he has held back from us. And it is always his to be used for our benefit and for his glory. But if we reject God, then the way we relate to him and to others is radically different. And it is self-seeking and self-serving. And it's taking rather than giving. And so this morning we're going to talk about what this commandment affirms, which is generosity. For generosity is the antidote to theft. You can't be a generous thief. The Bible spends a lot of time and energy um, talking about money and possessions, and so I'm conscious that we are invading the turf of a very powerful God this morning, the God of money and possessions, which so easily seduces us into unbelief and apostasy. Did, did you know that there are over 2,530 2, verses in the Bible dealing with money and possessions? And did you know that 15% of the recorded words of Jesus deal with money? It was a subject of enormous importance to Jesus and ought to be to us as well. He knew that before we can enthrone the true God, we have to dethrone a false God. And so the use of our money is the acid test of our love for God. Now, there are lots of places we could go to in the Bible but I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning, and I'm going to read for us now from verse 6 to verse 15. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to that, or it will be on the screen in front of you. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 from verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Uh, Paul is writing to the Gentile church in Corinth to motivate them to be generous towards Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who have fallen on hard times. And so Paul is writing to motivate the Corinthians to gather together a collection which will be fetched by Paul's assistant, Titus, and brought to those in the East who are in need. It's an opportunity for generosity from Christians towards other Christians. It's a chance to bring unity between Jew and Gentile, which is a passion of Paul's, and it's a chance for Paul to give some teaching on generosity. And I want to just tease out three points from this passage of teaching about generosity. The first point sounds a bit strange, hilarious giving, verses 6 and 7. And I'll explain to you in a moment why I've used the word hilarious. In verse 6, our giving is to be generous. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Literally, verse 6 starts with these words. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly, whoever sows generously. And he uses an agricultural picture which, have been, which would have been understood by his audience. He contrasts the words sparingly and generously. <clears throat> uh, it literally says, whoever sows sparingly, sparingly will reap. And whoever sows generously, generously will reap. What he's saying is he's saying that, that giving is like sowing. The Corinthians uh, tended to be tight-fisted, but Paul wants them to be generous sowers. One commentator says, freely given, generous contributions produce a bountiful yield. That's Paul's point. And there's a great spiritual principle here, which comes elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, it could be that Paul has got uh, Proverbs chapter 11 behind his thinking here, which says one person gives freely, yet gains even more. Um, another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. It, it sounds like um, the verse of the prosperity preacher, that, doesn't it? 
You can imagine the prosperity preachers using that verse to say, can you see, if you give, you'll get. And so give in order to get is what the prosperity teachers would say. And in our correction of that, you know, giving not because you want to give, but giving because you want to get, greedy giving is what prosperity preachers would encourage us to do. In our correction of that, we need to not overcorrect. There is a general principle here. Of course, we mustn't think that we can get God to give us what we want through this method of giving generously. We mustn't claim things that God hasn't promised. But it is generally true, nevertheless, that God delights to bless the generous. God loves a cheerful giver. And uh, God can trust the generous with more. That is a, a general principle. Um, I often think of, of the conversation I had with a young man once who told me that his contribution to the gospel in the world is that he wanted to be very, very rich so that he could give lots of money to the gospel, which is a very noble thought. And I said to him, can God trust you with lots of money? It's a key question, that. The, the sign that he can is that you are already generous even if you don't have lots of money. It's an attitude and a heart of generosity. The agricultural picture of sowing is a very apt one. The farmer who is sowing is thinking about the future. It's not instant gratification. He doesn't see the results immediately. He's willing to wait, for it can take months before you see the results of your sowing. But he will see the results. And it's like that with our gifts to the gospel. It might only bear fruit in, in months or years to come. We might not see the results even in our own lifetime. We sow generously and we wait for fruit. We can't make it grow. That's God's department. He's the one who germinates the seed. Our department is to sow the seed. We don't know where it lands. Uh, it's interesting, the parable that Jesus tells in Mark chapter 4 about the sower who sows the seed. Um, the seed falls on bad soil and on good soil, but there's three times the amount of bad soil than good soil. When we sow the seed, there's lots of wastage of the seed. And in spite of the wastage of the seed, there is a great harvest, 30, 60, or even 100-fold, Jesus says. And so in verse 7, he says, each of you should give what you have decided in your own heart. Think about it. Contemplate it. Look at your finances. Look at your situation. Talk to your household. Make a wise decision and then take action. And so generosity is the first principle there. But cheerfulness is the second one. The second half of verse 7, each of you should decide, should give what you've decided in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Um, it's the great uh, Christian secret is that giving makes you happy. And that's where the word hilarious comes in, by the way. The word for cheerful is the word hilaros, from which we get the word hilarious. Uh, it gives great joy. Not We don't give begrudgingly or because of guilt. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that we don't take collection in our church. We don't send the bag around because it tends to lead to guilt-inspired giving. It's a terrible motivation to give. Or um, maybe shame-inspired giving because the person next to me gave and I didn't. 
I better just check what change I have for God in my pocket. It's a terrible motivation for giving. No, God loves a cheerful giver. Of course, it's not an encouragement to be casual or impulsive. It should be planned and consistent and faithful. But one of the great secrets of the Christian life is that giving makes you happy. It really is more blessed to give than to receive, as we are told in Acts chapter 20 and verse 35. Augustine said, where your pleasure is, there is your treasure, and where your treasure is, there is your heart, and where your heart is, there is your happiness. It's a great quote. And so the hilarious giving. Secondly, the secret of generosity. How do we become generous? Look at verse 8, which sounds a little bit like a fridge magnet verse to me. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. I want you to see this verse in a different translation because I think uh, the ESV translates it more helpfully for us. Look at verse 8 there on your screen. That's a different translation to the NIV. Uh, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, which can also be translated as contentment, in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. Let's think about that. Let's keep that up for a bit, Corin, if you don't mind. Firstly, God is able to give you contentment in your situation. The word sufficiency is in the NIV translated as abundantly. He's able to bless you abundantly. Can you see the difference there in the translation? The word abundant is the word sufficient, which can also be translated as contented. And what's a little bit difficult about this verse is that the word for sufficiency stroke contentment there is actually translated 50% of the time as sufficiency and 50% of the time as contentment in the Bible. So let's think about that. God is able to give you sufficiently what you need is is the way the NIV has chosen to translate it. The ESV rather. And of course, he can do that. Uh, He will supply our needs in order for us to live. It is true that God provides sufficiently for us. We can actually believe, take to heart that promise and believe that promise. Um, I think that 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 needs to, though, be held quite tightly with God is able to make you contented in your situation. Of course, God is able to give you what you need in order to live in your situation, sufficiency. But God is also able to make you contented with what you've got. Um, I think the prosperity gospel says God will provide you with all the things you are discontented about not having. But I think the Bible says God will provide you with contentment for the things that you do have. That's the difference. I think we can trust him to give us enough to live, but I think he also will give us contentment with the amount that he has given us. I wonder if it could be that we we might feel that we never have enough because we are discontented with what we do have. One preacher put it like this. He said, before you are a Christian, 
you are contented spiritually and discontented materially. When you become a Christian, you are discontented spiritually because you are hungry for more, and you are contented materially. You're satisfied with what God has given you. Can you see that, that this is really what lies behind generosity? You will be generous if you are contented. And the, I think the promise in verse 8, it, you can take it both ways. God will give you enough to live. But perhaps more importantly, God will make you contented with the enough that he has given you so that you're not always grasping for more or comparing ourselves up all the time. It's an easy thing for us to do that, isn't it, to compare ourselves up. Do you know, I read an article some time ago. I don't know if this is true. I've been able to fact-check it. It sounds right to me. The article said that if you are able, to, if you have to make the decision in the morning when you get up as to what you will wear that day, that you're in the top 5% of the world when it comes to wealth and possessions. Now, maybe that's a bit exaggerated. I'm not sure. I'm sure it's close to the truth. Maybe it's 10%. But I take it that that means that we, you know, when we are discontented, it's because we are comparing ourselves up, aren't we, to the 1% and 2%, rather than down to the vast majority of people in the world today. And so perspective is an important thing there. So God is able to provide for us to live. God is able to provide us with contentment with what he has given us in order to live. But God is also able to provide enough for us to give, not just to live, but to give. And so verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Of course, the call to being generous is not a call to impoverish yourself. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell wealthy Christians to impoverish themselves. It holds up generosity as a model so that we can be great givers. I remember at a previous church that I served at, there was a lady who'd had a terrible experience in a previous church that she had been involved with, which was into prosperity. And she gave, she was a fairly wealthy woman who gave absolutely every last beam that she had, including properties, to the previous church, and then was destitute, absolutely destitute. Her children were furious with her, probably because they lost their inheritance, but also because of the way that she was then cast aside by the previous church, who told her that the reason that she was now penniless was because she didn't have enough faith. And, if, and it was her fault I don't think the gospel calls on us to impoverish ourselves and to become a burden on others. But it does encourage us with this promise to be generous because God will give us more in order to be more generous. Friends, can you see that the end of theft, the end of material selfishness is generosity and the secret to generosity is contentment. One last heading. Paul gives us some incentives towards generosity. I'll just run through these quite quickly. First of all, in look at verse 11, the first part of 11. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. 
That is, you will be blessed by God in your generosity. As we give to others, he will give us more so that we can give more to others. Um, we mustn't let the peddlers of the prosperity gospel steal this truth from us. It is generally true that the God who provides daily for three billion birds in the world values us more and provides for us too. And you know, can I ask you, those of you who have been Christians for a few years now, won't you just for a moment in your mind's eye look back on God's track record of provision in your life? It really is um, without any blot at all, is it? Isn't it? His track record is perfect. When you think about how he's, those times when you wondered how you were going to do it, and here you're sitting, God provided. You know, the provision of God is easier seen with hindsight. We want him to provide as we sit here for tomorrow, don't we? But let's look backwards and see how he, how he provided for us yesterday. And that will help us to strengthen our grip on him. And so start where you are, be realistic, be thoughtful about what you give, see what you can afford, and remember he is able to provide for you. Martin Luther said this, I've tried to keep things in my hands and I've lost them. But what I've given into God's hands, I still possess. That's a man looking back on God's track record in his life. And so you will be blessed. Secondly, God will be thanked when, when we give. Verse 11 again, you'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Again, verse 12, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. We give so that God will be thanked, not so that we will be thanked. Different motivation, because our hearts are different since we become Christians. I received a wonderful letter of thanks the other day from Peter Macapella, who is um, leading the church plant that we are supporting in Klapmitz. You know, we give him uh, an amount every month towards the salary of the young man that he is training to look after that plant. He was grateful to receive our old chairs as well for that plant. And uh, I got such a warm-hearted letter from him that was full of thanks, yes, to us, but actually to the Lord for his provision. What a wonderful thing that is. What a small thing. I felt embarrassed. I, I, we, it's so tiny what we are doing. I wish we could do more. But God is thanked when we are generous. Not only that, the needy are helped when we are generous. Again, verse 12, the service that you perform supplies the needs of the Lord's people. That is a worthy cause, is it not? Friends, we've got a relief fund in our church that helps people uh, uh, discreetly and privately in our church. It's been going since uh, COVID times. Um, it's a joy to be able to do that. Um, if somebody wanted to give directly to that fund, you could speak to our treasurer. It's well managed. It's uh, added to every month from our general giving. 
and, and from our gift month giving, it's hopelessly inadequate. We could be doing so much more. We'd love to be doing so much more. It's a wonderful thing to be able to help God's people and to supply their needs as much as we are able to. And then verse 13 and 14, the church is strengthened when we are generous. And uh, he, of course, is talking really about um, the wonderful demonstration of unity between Gentile and Jew, between the church in Corinth and the church in Jerusalem, which had been subject to a famine and to very hard economic times. And so in verse 13, he says, Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. What a wonderful thing when Christians' hearts go out to each other. It's a demonstration of Christian unity. And that often comes as a result of generosity. Can you see, brothers and sisters, that theft and greed is replaced by generosity and contentment? We've got, we've got the law on our hearts, and that's ought to, that ought to be our motivation and our desire. And then there is a final punchline in verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You know, Corinth was a church with great gifts. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul goes on and on about how incredibly gifted they were. They were boastful of their gifts. They were proud of their gifts. They, were, they wanted to display their gifts, and Paul is sick and tired of that kind of spirituality. Don't glory in your gifts, he says. Glory in God's indescribable gift of Christ. Be other person-centered. Be devoted to building others up, not just taking for yourself. Becoming a Christian involves a profound shift in perspective and attitude towards life and towards others and towards ourselves. Seeing the generosity of God will help us to see beyond our own self-interest. The generosity of God means that we can enjoy what we eat and drink, but we share what we eat and drink so that we can demonstrate that we know that there is more to life than what we eat and drink. We have greater concerns. We are concerned for eternity. We are concerned for the glory of God. We are concerned to be Christ-like and to be other person-centered in the way in which we live our lives. And we know God who provides sufficiently for us and who has given us the gift of his Son holding nothing back. Can I ask you this morning, have you received that gift that God has given? Do you know God does not require you to give money before the gift is yours? The gift has been given regardless of whether or not you give. It's available to all, including to thieves and to the corrupt and to the greedy and to the self-centered. He wants to give you his gift, his indescribable gift of Christ, who died on the cross to forgive your sins and to change your heart from being a heart that wants to take a self-interested heart into a heart that delights 
cheerfully, hilariously, to give generously.